Acts 26, Paul's testimony before Agrippa. Now, what's interesting about this passage is, as we kind of go through, Acts is just an interesting book in that um, there's all this action early on. And then there's like just all these incredible stories. And then towards the end, it just kind of starts to level off. And you start to see some repetitive things. That's why we covered two chapters last week. And as we'll see, like it, Acts doesn't even end with a really nice, um, tidy conclusion. Um, and so in this time, what we have is um, an example, one of these most powerful examples of Paul giving his testimony. He is, he is often, like he's been accused falsely. He's been in prison. He's given a defense and now he finally gets to um, share with King Agrippa. And in this, I, I think what, what was striking to me and what I think would be helpful this morning for us is, is just to consider Paul's testimony and what are the parallels and what can we draw from that in, in understanding our own testimony, our own story of how God has, has rescued us. Now, I know that not everybody in here um, is a Christian. Not everybody here, like many of you are um, are seeking and you're trying to discern like figure out okay God are you real are you there and and if that's you like Christoph said you know for for communion we're just we're thankful that you're here you are in the right place and I would honestly say um, this is one of the things where I would almost uh, well not almost I would ask for your forgiveness in the ways that we have muddied the waters and sharing about our king the ways that we've been distracted by all kinds of tangents and made other things, things that are not the main thing, we've made them the main thing and, and caused a lot of confusion. And so my hope is that if you're sitting there this morning and you're saying, well, I don't have a testimony because I, I'm not a follower of Jesus, that in this, in Paul's testimony, you might have the opportunity to, to connect or engage or hear other people's testimonies, maybe at lunch or later this week. So I want to encourage you that whoever has um, brought you here today, that uh, after this sermon, that it would be incredible, it would be a great opportunity to ask those people, say, okay, well, you tell me your story. Tell me how, how God rescued you. Because our testimonies, our stories of, of how God has saved us and what he has done in our lives is, is a powerful thing that God has given us to share. And what it is ultimately is our testimonies. We're not testifying really to our own lives. We're testifying, we're giving testimony to the goodness of God, to the reality of God, to the power of his grace and his mercy and his love. And what we really find is that it's our testimonies are really just our story, how our story has intersected and, and been kind of swallowed up in God's story. And now our, our stories are not our own anymore, but they belong to him. They are part of what he has done, his story of redemption of all things. And so this morning, I just want to look at this testimony and say, okay, what do we draw from this? How, how does this stir our hearts, both for what God has done for us and how we can share that with others? Would you pray with me? Father, help us this morning. God, I pray that as we read Paul's testimony, that we would remember how you have saved us. Remember how you have redeemed us and forgiven us for our rebellion and how you are renewing us day by day. And God, not just, not just remembering as it was some distant event, but even our continued brokenness, knowing that every day 
Lord, we are desperate to be reminded of your redemption, of your forgiveness, that you are the one who justifies. You are the one who makes us righteous. Lord, I pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you would stir our affections for you and remembering all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at 26, chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. All right, so Paul starts out his testimony by doing what is often um, described in a testimony that often if me if you've ever learned like how to share your testimony or how to share this story um, then you'd be familiar with kind of these phases like one phase is okay what what was your life like before Christ before God got a hold of you in Jesus what what was your life like and then there's often the the next point then of okay well then tell me about how did God reach you then in that like where you were in your life how did God and the power of the spirit reach down and save you and rescue you and then what is your life what has your life looked like since and so those kind of three big categories and, and that's what we're going to go and I, I there's a there's a fourth one that kind of sneaks in there that Jesus just sneaks in there that we often don't think about but we'll, we'll look at that one. But that's kind of the big outline to think about it, that Paul's going to talk about what his life was like before Christ, what it looked like when he met Christ and when he was saved, and then what his life has looked like since. And you'll find that for all of us, our lives have a very similar story, a very similar outline. And so he talks first about his life before Christ. And we often think of that in terms of just like a list of all the bad things that we've done. And I remember thinking that when I'd hear stories from people that they would get up and they would share their testimony and their testimony would be filled with all kinds of, of just hard life and, and sin and they would share the story and, and you know, then they, they came to Christ and I'd always think that was amazing. But here was the problem for me. I, I came, God rescued me when I was 11. And so 
I definitely had sin in my life. Like, I don't know if you're aware of this, but nine and 10 year olds can sin. I know it's hard for you to have nine and 10 year olds. Like, my angel? No, like never. Um, but I would look at that and I would think like, well, so I would try to make up things. Like, I'd try to be like, okay, well, you know, one time in, 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 when I was nine, I talked back to the teacher in class. And, and this other time, like, I, I, I um, lied to my brother. And people would be like, oh, that's amazing. And I, would, I was so confused by that and torn about this because I'm like, well, gosh, what is it that God has saved me from? Like, I just feel like, man, I don't know that I have the story of other people um, that have, have these other stories that seem much more profound and much more amazing that God could save um, people from all kinds of, of lives. And we tend to fall into these ditches in our testimonies. Like one is we think that what is compelling about our story is our sinful way of life before Christ. We think that like that's the part that is so amazing and so profound. And I just want to say to that that if that's ever been a temptation or if you've ever felt like, man, I don't have the same story as some of those other people that seem like God has done so much more in their life, I just want to let you know that I don't care like how, um, how deep the pit you have lived in in your life. That is not the most compelling part of the story. The most compelling part of the story is that the creator of the universe rescues rebels against him that instead of destroying his enemies, that he becomes flesh and lives the life that we could not live and die the death that we deserved so that we could be reconciled to him. That sin is, is rebellion. And so that is one of the ditches that we'll fall into in, in these testimonies is that we think that what's compelling is what our life, like how far from God we were before Jesus rescued us. The other ditch that we tend to fall into is in a culture where we try to minimize and show how small the gap is between where we were and, and, and God. Meaning that we get to a place where we kind of share stories of like, well, I've always, I've always believed. I've always grown up in the church. I've just always, just always been. And so we kind of do that and, and, and talk about like our faithful parents and we feel the need to like craft this story that shows that we were basically there. Like we were almost there. And then Jesus just like helped me, gave me a little boost for the end. And then we, in those cultures, sometimes we feel badly about, like we feel badly about some of the other sin in our lives and thinking like, man, I don't, I don't know that that's my story. And we can hear that and we kind of minimize some of our sin. That we want to talk about how, how like we were basically there until Jesus. And then, yeah, Jesus saved me, but, you know, like I was, I was like 98% of the way there. He just gave me that boost. Can I just tell you that's also a lie? Like we are not, we do not believe that we get like most of the way there. Like we're paying off our debt, like trying to pay off a credit card. And we made a lot of payments. We made a lot of good progress, but we just can't get over the hump. And then God comes in and just like spots us a few hundred dollars or maybe a thousand dollars. Just get us over the hump so that we can pay it off finally in full. That's not any of our stories. That regardless of what your life looked like before Christ, we all have the same story. And it's found here in Paul's story. It's interesting that Paul, here's one, the connection I want to make. It's interesting that in Paul, we have both of those ditches. We have both of those testimonies. 
So think about it. On the one side of like how bad of a life could you have lived? Can you imagine like how bad of a life would you live when your story is I murdered Christians? I persecuted the church. He said with fury, like he chased them down from even in foreign cities. He was so, he was so driven to persecute the church that he would chase them down and get charges against them and vote against them so that they would be killed. There's a reason why he says that he is the foremost of all sinners. Because he feels it. But he was also as religious as anyone could be. Notice his testimony that I was the strictest sect. He's saying, I was a Pharisee. He described himself as a Pharisee among Pharisees. Like he, he was seen among the Pharisees who were the strictest people. These are the people that took the word of God most seriously. They were most devoted to God's law and most devoted to being righteous and being holy. And, even, and they often get painted in a bad light and, and with good reason. They don't represent themselves really well in the Gospels for sure. But the, but the Pharisees, were the, they were the sect of Judaism that was trying to remain separated from the culture, that they did not want the culture to like water down God's law. They were fiercely committed to God's law. And Paul is saying, like, that was me. Even among the Pharisees, I was seen as like a true Pharisee. And so you see both of these things. We see both the, the utter depravity, the thing that you would think you'd be just ashamed to admit to, but also the thing that we would be prone to brag about, to say like, see, I was so religious, no wonder God chose me. And yet he doesn't say those things. He doesn't find the, the most compelling thing about his story, either of those ditches, but he focuses on Christ. And, the, and what he does is he pulls out like the key to his testimony that unites both of those things. So now you have the one who's boasted in their religious upbringing and the one who is confessing dark sin. It's all pulled together in verse 9 with the key. See if you notice it. Verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That right there is the key and the cornerstone of his entire testimony, of his life before Christ. I was convinced that I ought to do all sorts of things to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. What he's really doing is demonstrating that forget about this, like forget about my self-righteousness and adhering to the law, that counts for nothing. Forget about this, my persecution of, of Christians. The real root of what's going on here is that he was against God. That he was for himself. That he did what seemed right to him. He was convinced that the road he was on was the right road. That is our story. He was living for himself and doing what seemed right to him. That at its core, at its root, is what sin is. At its root, it is rebellion against God. It is saying, I know better. And it's evidenced through our sinful actions, whether self-righteousness or things that even the world would look at and say that that is sinful. 
The problem isn't those specific things. It's not those specific actions. It's the root of seeing myself as rightful king of my life and following my desires and my will. Paul was in total rebellion against God, convinced that he was doing good. That describes all of us. Proverbs 14 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Regardless of what your story is, the specific details of what your life was like before Christ, the thing that we all have in common is whatever road you went down, whether it was in justifying yourself through your righteous works or in like rebellion manifested through all kinds of sin, What you have in common and what we all have in common together is that we pursue a way that seems right to us, seems good to us, but it leads to destruction. And whether your story is, maybe your story is like, man, I lived a dark life and I ran from God and I did everything I could think of to prove to God that he didn't love me, that he doesn't that he doesn't care for me, to rebel against my religious upbringing or to rebel against the church in general or just against God or against anybody and everybody, then the story that you have is pursuing what seemed right to you, what seemed good to you, what seemed like it would fulfill your desires. But if you belong to Christ, then your story is also that those things left you empty. They didn't fulfill you. They didn't satisfy you. Or those who are raised in religious upbringings and have always seen themselves as, like, as, as good, as a good person. That then we can identify with Paul and saying, yeah, but I was pursuing those things. I've heard so many testimonies from people who are like, yeah, I was, I was raised in the church and I did what seemed right to me. I did what would please my parents or what would please the pastor or what would please my friends or what would please like I I was just living for them I was living for their approval that's part of my story even after coming to Christ part of my story was the pressure and the weight that came on me as people started putting um, responsibilities on me and started like trying like I would I, I remember the first time I ever preached in a church I was 14 years old that is entirely too much weight to put on a 14-year-old. And I started living for other people. And my life very much became about trying to perform for the Christians who saw something in me rather than for God. And many of you might be able to share that story. And, and Paul having that story and knowing that now his testimony in that and your testimony in that and my testimony in that is none of those good works matter when not done in faith. They count for nothing. That's a powerful testimony. The testimony that we all share is if you belong to Jesus, then we were blind. And now you see. Blind to our sin, thinking that it was good and right. Blind to God's goodness, thinking that our way was better. Blind to God's grace, thinking that we're supposed to save ourselves or prove ourselves worthy for God. Blind that we are dead in our sin. And the path we are on leads to destruction, whether it looks religious or it doesn't. But God doesn't leave us on that path. Because God saves. Look at verse 12. 
In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So Paul then shares, he's saying like, okay, King Agrippa, this is who I was. And then on the road to Damascus, doing what I thought was right, like literally on this road, I'm confronted by Jesus, blinded by a light. And Jesus speaks to him. Now, I dare say that most of us would not have this part of our story be nearly so dramatic. If it is, praise God. I've seen that happen for people where they've had this kind of dramatic conversion. Praise God. I love it when God does that. But many of us, I think, have a much quieter version of that internally. For many of us, it isn't maybe as dramatic, but the actual act is just as powerful. Like there's a point where you realize, and maybe you can remember that point. Maybe you don't remember that point. Maybe you do. So maybe you remember the point, you remember, okay, I remember when God just opened my eyes and I saw. And that's a t- point that you can, right now, you can still remember where you were, when, when that happened. When you realized you were living for yourself and not for God, when you repented of your sin and you turned and you received Christ. Some of you have that moment. And I just want to say that's awesome. I love that. I love when I hear testimonies and people talk about like, man, I I was here, I dropped to my knees, I, I prayed, I repented. But not everybody has that story. Some, for some, you, you can't really remember a specific time that it was a much more gradual shift. Maybe you don't really know when that was. And maybe you felt kind of inferior in that way of like, man, you maybe hear other testimonies, you're like, well, they seem to know specifically when they made this decision. Here's the thing. I just want to be really clear about something theologically. A decision does not save you. Jesus saves you. Okay? So I used to do this. I would, I would interview kids, um, you know, when we did in a church that I used to be a part of when I was in youth ministry, we would have confirmation. And so that was where they're supposed to confirm um, the vows that were taken on their behalf in, in baptism. And it was really kind of a neat process because you got to deal with like 14 and 15 year olds and, and have an environment where they get to say like, well, like, what do you believe? And I would sit down with each one of them and I would ask them like to share their story and what do they actually believe? And some of them would say like, I, I love Jesus. Like I'm living for him, I, I, but I don't remember a specific time. I don't know when that shifted because they were brought up in the church. And especially for people who are brought up in the church, this happens a lot where we, we say it as like, well, I've always believed. We know theologically that that isn't true. But what is possible is that God is just, by his grace, has, uh, has enveloped you um, in, a, in a culture of faith or you're brought up by, by parents maybe who love Jesus and have always like prayed with you and you just don't remember a time where you, don't, where you didn't believe. 
And I just want you to know that that is every bit as powerful and every bit as amazing and every bit as miraculous. The question that matters is the one that Paul asks of Jesus on that road. Who are you, Lord? And what I would tell those kids when they would say, like, I don't remember a time, I would ask them the question. I would say, well, who is Jesus? And they would say, he's, he's Lord. He's God. What did Jesus do for you? He saved me. I'd say, well, awesome. I don't know when you were saved either. But you are now. And that's what I would want to encourage you with, is, like, is to ask that question. Because the other side note there that happens with us is that we assume because we were raised in the church that we are Christians. Whether you were raised in the church or you weren't raised in the church, at some point you are looking at Jesus and saying, who are you? And it may for you have been confirmation in life where you're just like, well, this is what I've always told. This is the culture I've always been in. I've always, like, I've never thought anything different. But there's a point where you look at Jesus and you say, who are you? Is he Lord? Or is he a teacher? Is he a philosopher? Is he, like, Santa? Like, who is he? And so our story that God saves us in that moment for all of us happens when we say, Jesus, you are Lord. And that's really the only question that matters. And notice it's like, who are you, Lord? When I often share the gospel with people, there are all kinds of objections that that are made. Fears of like, well, if I were to believe that, then that would mean all these different changes in my life. If I were to, if I were to follow um, Jesus in that, like, well, what, how would know, how would, like, maybe, maybe I have to change my job, maybe I have to change, the, like, all kinds of things that I do. Like, they're just kind of overwhelmed by all of that. And what I've noticed is that all of those questions are secondary to that question of who are you, Lord? Like, is Jesus who he claims to be or is he not? And for all of us in our testimonies, like, our lives should demonstrate that he is Lord. Like, we get into all kinds of tangents with people. We talk about morality. We talk about laws. We talk about dinosaurs. We talk about sexuality. We talk about translations of the Bible. And here's the thing. I'm not saying none of those conversations are ever valuable, but what I am saying when it comes to God saving people, the only question that matters is who is Jesus? That's the question that matters. That's the question that we all have to answer. And if he is Lord, then all the other things fall into place. Because if Jesus, like I've often said that for me, a huge turning point was when I confronted the reality of the resurrection and said, okay, it all hinges on that. If Jesus rose from the dead, like if I could go back in time, I would go right there in front of that tomb and watch for Jesus to walk out of there. Because all the doubts that I used to have in my mind, all the things that I would ask, because I was a um, like very like mathematical, logical, like I am the kid that was asking about dinosaurs. I am the kid that was asking about the problem of evil and all those different things. And here's the thing about translations, about like, well, how many people actually translated the Bible? Well, here's the thing. If Jesus walks out of that tomb, I don't care about dinosaurs. If that dude walks out, gets up from being murdered and walks out of a tomb and just walks away, then he can tell me whatever he wants about dinosaurs and I believe him. Right? Like all of a sudden my view, my opinions, my thoughts 
don't seem to really hold water against that guy who just got up and walked out of a grave. And the same is true in our lives. Because we will distract ourselves with all these other big questions, but the question for us in our lives is who is he? Is he like the president of my faith? Or is he my Lord? Does my life exist apart from him or is my life hidden in him? That's the question that Paul is asking on that road. I had a professor in seminary that told, told the story about being a young man in the church and going with um, one of his pastors to go and visit a, a person in the community and share the gospel with him. It was somebody that had I don't know how they expressed some interest in hearing the gospel. And so the pastor took my professor with him and they went and they shared the gospel. And when they presented and they basically, you know, shared the gospel with him about how God created, how we rebelled and how Jesus redeems and offers new life and forgiveness. And the guy had one objection he worked a job that he wasn't sure he could continue in if he became a Christian. And he was worried about that. He thought, like, I don't know if my job, it wasn't like a really terrible job or anything. It wasn't anything that we would say is like completely overtly sinful you know, or anything. It was just a, it was a worldly job that he was kind of worried about, like, man, if I, if I do follow Jesus, like, does that mean I'm going to have to quit my job? And my professor immediately wanted to say to him, like, no, no, no. Like, you don't need to do that. Like, your job is fine. Don't worry about your job. Like, um, you know, God, God can work through all kinds of jobs. So he's like ready to tell this guy to relieve that pressure off of him and say, you know, you don't need to worry about that. Keep doing your job. But before he could get any of that out, the older pastor just looked at the guy and said, maybe. And the guy kind of stopped. He's like, well, what do you mean maybe? And pastor just said, maybe, I don't know. I don't know what God's going to ask you to do. The question is, is Jesus Lord? If he's Lord and he asks you to quit your job, then quit your job. If he tells you to keep your job, then keep your job. And what my professor had learned in that was how often we try to soften everything around Christianity. Try to soften that idea of Jesus as Lord. That we, we try to like fill our teachings with like good philosophies from the Bible that would just maybe help your life a little bit better. I just want you to know that's not the gospel. The gospel is that we are rebels. The good news is that God, rather than turning us over for destruction, he has forgiven us through Jesus Christ. And that is what will bring life. And so whatever question you ask, if you're sitting there this morning and you're thinking, yeah, but if I really stepped over this line of faith, if I really committed my life to following Jesus, then what would that mean? Like, would I have to give this up? And my answer to you is a resounding maybe. But if he's Lord, if he really did live the life that you and I were called to live and we could not, and if he really did die the death that you and I deserved, and if he really did walk out of that tomb, then what do all those other things matter? Who is he? 
he mentions, quotes Jesus as saying something that's not in the earlier story of him being converted, like, why are you kicking against the goats? If you don't know, which you may not, a goad was just a sharp, long, sharp stick that would be used to prod ox out, stubborn ox. He's basically calling Paul like, you're a big, dumb, stubborn ox. And I don't know about you, but I so relate to that. Like, I am so often in my life a big, dumb animal. And this thing, that is the goad that they would poke, it would be to, like, prod them, but the ox would not like that. They don't like being poked with a stick, surprisingly. So they, they kick against it. When they kick against it, guess what happens? More pain. And what Jesus is saying to Paul is like, why are you just fighting against this? Like you're fighting against God's goodness and his love. Like he's showing you the path. He is taking you down the path, but you just continue to push against it. I don't know if anybody relates to that, but I certainly do. Like whatever thing that you are kicking against. I mean, I just want to ask, like, aren't you tired? And if your story is that, then your story is partly of just being tired of doing that. Aren't you tired of doing what makes sense to you and ending up in the same spot? Aren't you tired of believing that each time will be different? Aren't you tired with flirting with the idea of God and then going away and then coming only to come back again? Aren't you tired of trying to perform your righteousness and hoping that will be enough? If so, then come to Jesus. Repent and receive his grace. Stop kicking against the goats and answer, who is he? And then what happens in there is Paul realizes and he has this moment. But then it's really interesting what Jesus does. Look what Jesus does in response. Verse 16, after he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he says, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to do to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What Jesus does is immediately upon saving him, he says, I haven't just saved you from something. I've saved you for something. And that is all of our stories. You don't have to be the Apostle Paul to have this story. We are saved not only from something, from the consequences of our rebellion, from eternal separation from God in hell, but we are also saved for something, saved to participate in the kingdom coming to earth, to participate in God's mission in the world. It is not simply praying a prayer and then going on with his normal life. He doesn't just get to that place and go, oh, okay, Jesus, so you're Lord. Okay, never mind. All right, then I'm going to stop persecuting. I'm just going to stop doing all these bad things, and then I'm just going to continue on with my life. No, when Jesus redeems us, redeem means, redemption means to buy back. So Jesus is buying us back, and he's saying, no, Paul, you now belong to me. I've forgiven you, I'm restoring you, but now you, I'm sending you out. And you will be my witness.
And he says not only to the Jews, but also the Gentiles. He said especially sent to the Gentiles. And you think about Paul's life. And I used to wonder, like, God, why wouldn't you send him specifically to the Jews? Like, why the Gentiles? He's already said he's the strictest of Pharisees. Why would you send him to the people who don't care about God's law or know God's law at all? But who better than the strictest of Pharisees to tell the Gentiles that they can receive the free gift of eternal life through Jesus? Like, who better than the one who says, look, I did all the things I obeyed all the things and I needed God's grace. Like I'm saved by Jesus. Who better than that guy to tell people who have been kind of marginalized and seen as not as holy and him saying, you don't have to do all those things. You have to trust in Jesus. The question for you is if you've been saved, then part of your story is where you've been sent. Who are you called to? What population are you uniquely gifted to reach? Sometimes it's exactly who you would think it would be, and sometimes it's completely the opposite. In the spirit of asking for forgiveness later, because he's staring at me a lot, I just I see like Dave Ekstrom sitting over there. I don't know if you know Dave, but Dave is always in the prisons, ministering and sharing the gospel with people who have lived really hard lives. And all it takes is about 2.4 seconds to look at Dave and say, I don't know that you've lived that hard of a life in that way. He's had other hard things happen in his life, don't get me wrong. But that, like, he doesn't walk into the prison and say, when he's sharing the gospel with people, saying, Oh man, I was there. When I was living the gang life and dealing and doing all that, like, in his business attire, like, dude, this is the most casual I've ever seen him dress. Like, it's a button down, khakis, like, this is the guy. And he goes in there. And he's had a profoundly powerful ministry in the prisons. Why? Not because he shares all those things in common, but because the same gospel that saved him is the same gospel that he's preaching to the people in prison. He doesn't need to have shared all those experiences. In fact, it's really powerful that he goes in there in his situation and they have to answer the question of why would you care? Why would, you, why would you take your time to come here and talk with me and share with me and go and print out notes of sermons and send them to me and do all these things? Like, why would you do that? Because the same Jesus that can save you saved me. It's powerful. And so make no mistake, if Jesus has saved you, he has sent you. He has not saved you just to live a life of just kind of comfort and figuring out, okay, well now I'm just going to live this moral Christian life. No, he has saved you to send you. Sometimes it's a story of people going back home to where you never thought you'd go back. Sometimes it's being sent to a place that's completely foreign to you into a world that you don't understand. Like Marinette. Little little friendly banter here. He's never heard anybody. But we look around, and I see those stories all over the place. And so to know that you are sent, that he saved you for something is a huge part of your story. And the question is just, will you obey? Because Paul does. And he says, I... 
Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. So he's saying, like, look, I I obeyed. This is what Jesus said to me. This is how he sent me, and I have obeyed. But then look what he does. I love this. Verse 22, look what he comes back to. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. You cannot keep Paul away from the resurrection. You can't do it. He keeps coming back to that. He starts with, I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Like, why is that so incredible for you to believe that God raises the dead? And then he ends, he comes back to the resurrection. Why? Because it's the only thing that matters. It's the only reason any of this matters. It's not a philosophy. It's not something unverifiable. Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again. I don't know if you've <clears throat> seen the, um, the TV series The Chosen, but it's been, it's been really popular. And frankly, I've, I've really enjoyed it. And just so you know, I'm kind of a Christian media snob. Like having have a background in video production and film and that kind of thing, like it, I, I honestly, I find a lot of Christian media very cringe-inducing. But the chosen, amen, I love that, I get, <laughs> love that I get an amen for that. I, I affirm that amen. Um, but the chosen has is, is been really well done. And I think it's been really faithful to what the scenes might have looked like and how they might have played out. And it's been incredibly popular, not just with Christians, but with non-Christians. And I want you to notice something, and I want you just to watch and see if something happens. I expect it will continue to be popular, as popular as it's been, until we get to some of the more challenging things that Jesus says and does. I think it will mirror what we see in Scripture, that as long as Jesus is healing the sick, performing miracles, loving the outcast, being a champion for the underserved, then people will love him. But as soon as he starts talking about the kingdom of God, and his sacrifice to atone for sin, and the call of the Christian life to suffer, then just like the crowds in the Bible left him, so will the audience for the chosen. Because people are often fine with Jesus as a philosopher and a humanitarian, even those within the church. but not as a sacrifice for my sin. Not as one who redeems me by his blood. Not as one who raises from the dead. But without that, we don't have Christianity. That's what the gospel all hinges on. And that power that raises God, raises Jesus from the dead, is the same power that dwells in us. 
And that's why when Christianity is reduced to just a bunch of morals or a political philosophy or a set of beliefs, why it's so frustrating. Because the gospel is the good news that the kingdom has come to earth. First through the life of Jesus Christ as he, as he does go about healing people and performing miracles and preaching the good news. But now through us as the church, the kingdom of God is at hand and manifested in us. Notice Jesus does not say to Paul when he sends him, he doesn't say, you're now going to go, like, you've been persecuting my followers. You've been persecuting me, and you've been perse- persecuting the church. Which, by the way, when he says, why do you persecute me? He's saying, why do you persecute the church? Like, my body, why do you persecute me? And he doesn't say, like, so now your calling is to stop pers- um, persecuting the church, and now you're going to protect and defend the church. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, now you're going to turn And you're going to defend the church against those in your party that seek to destroy the church. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, you're going to be my witness to those who seek to destroy the church. Notice he isn't sending Paul to fight against God's enemies. He's sending him to be a witness that God's enemies might become his family. That's how we're sent to be a witness to the king and his kingdom that people might turn and be saved. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul refers to us as ambassadors. He says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And this language of ambassador is you know, referring to like, if you think about an embassy, and if you go into, if you went into the embassy of another country, like here in the U.S., like, you know, the French embassy or the Canadian embassy, if you, whatever country that was, if you went into that embassy and you watched how they treated each other and how they functioned, and if it was a completely different way from you and, and you loved it, what would you think? Like, if you saw them interacting with each other and just, like, enjoying one another and loving one another and, and, and celebrating and just living a life that you looked at and you were like, man, I love this. I love hanging out here. What would you think? Like, you'd probably want to go there. Like, man, i got to visit this country. Like, if this is what this culture is like, i got to visit this place. And what if you learned that they acted like that because of their king? Like even as other nations warred against them or mocked them, that they remained steadfast in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. I can tell you what I would think. I would want to live there. I would want to know that king. That is why Paul says we are ambassadors. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's why it's so critical that we live as kingdom people, not as worldly people. That we don't get lost in those battles. Because we were saved for something far greater, to show people what the kingdom of God looks like. It's a big calling. It's a big gospel. So that's what we're trying to do here, is cultivate a culture here that looks like the kingdom that testifies to the goodness of our king, where everyone is invited, regardless of what you look like or what your background is or what your week has been like or whether you feel like you can lift up hands and worship God or you just need to be among God's people. 
where seekers not only hear the truth about God, but also see the evidence of him working through this church family, to see people worshiping passionately, serving faithfully, loving extravagantly, that is our calling. And we're not perfect in any of this. And we have to extend grace to one another as we grow in this. And forgive as we have been forgiven. We are messy and imperfect and awkward at times and sometimes ramble too long in sermons, but it is a picture of the kingdom. And the kingdom is beautiful because the king is beautiful. That's exactly what Paul is doing. Everything he has done has been demonstrating what the kingdom of God is like. And so are the other believers who come to minister to him. Remember how well he's treated? Agrippa, Festus, they let his brothers and sisters come and visit him and take care of his needs. So they're not only watching Paul and how Paul has been interacting with them, but who else are they watching? Watching the church minister to Paul. And it's pretty powerful. And it's making King Agrippa take notice. Look at the, the, the response is interesting because what we end up having is Agrippa takes notice. It says, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. Remember, to those who are perishing, the gospel of the cross is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God, the wisdom of God. So Festus reacts that way, like, you are out of your mind. You are nuts. And Paul says, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Can you imagine the audacity of Paul saying to the king, hey, Festus, I know you're thinking I'm crazy, but King Agrippa doesn't think I'm crazy. Do you? That's a pretty powerful scene. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. What did we say way back about the testimony through Acts that we would see the pattern that when the gospel is proclaimed, some will mock and others will have ears to hear? As far as we know, we don't know what happened to Agrippa. We know that Festus found all this to be foolish. But Paul's testimony is not a failure. His job was to proclaim the gospel news, the good news of the kingdom of God coming to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And he did it, by the way, from a position of weakness to people in great power. That's a whole other side note that I don't have time to go into, but just take note of that. That Paul did not do that from a position of power and authority. He did it from weakness preaching to those who are in great worldly power. So look, if you are a follower of Jesus, then this is your testimony. We all lived for ourselves in a way that seemed right to us. But God opened our eyes to see our rebellion and his mercy on display in the cross. And now our lives are not our own. We've been sent to tell others about this treasure that we found. 
And that's not a one-time testimony. That is a daily testimony of God's goodness and grace. Daily that I, I need to repent of living for myself. Daily, sometimes in big ways, sometimes in seemingly small ways. But moments where I say, like, this is, this is me in a way that seems right to me. And trying to lay down my life and saying, God, help me to turn and repent and receive God's grace through Jesus. And all of those stories that we have make up one big story. And the whole of this story is far greater than the sum of the parts. Because like we said before, you can explain away one person's kindness, but not a whole church's. And our testimony in the community right now is a really powerful example of that. So we just want to encourage you to be a part of that to know this is what we're doing, this is what we're trying, who we're trying to become, that this would be our big testimony and your individual testimony. So what does it look like for you this week? Who can you share with? I want to encourage you that if you've, as listening to this, and you've been reminded of your own testimony, your own story of what, how you were living for yourself, how Jesus saved you, what your life has looked like since then, are there people that don't know that about you? Are there people who think you're a Christian because it's like a political affiliation or a morality thing? Are there people who think you're a Christian because you just grew up in the church and you happen to kind of take it seriously? Are there people who think you're a Christian just because you kind of believe in these certain things or do they actually know how God has changed your life? Maybe take the opportunity this week to say, hey, I've never shared this with you. This is a really critical piece of who I am. It really is who I am. Maybe it means like inviting them then and saying like, this, this is my story and this is our church's story. And inviting them into that, to see, to come and observe, to come and see, to see a messy, imperfect, beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. If you are here and you are a follower of Jesus, then God has saved you for something. So press into that. Trust him. Know that he is good. And if you are here and you are not a follower of Jesus, then ask that question, who is he? Who is this God that so many people would come to worship and observe and to pray and to live their lives for? Because Paul's testimony is that he is Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day thank you, God, for how you have loved us and cared for us. We thank you, God, for our stories. God, I thank you for every individual testimony that is here and then the mass of those testimonies together and how they form a bigger story that is beautiful. Lord, I pray that you would help us Help us, God, to remember like, how you have saved us, to realize that our rebellion looks, and looks different, each one of us, but the root of it is still the same. And God, we are constantly tempted to go in a way that seems right to us. Lord, help us to surrender to you. Give us faith to believe and to live our lives for you. God, remind us that we are not just saved from something, but for something. And that send us, God, to the people that you have called us to, that we might proclaim.
the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. In Jesus' name, amen.